You are listening to Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. Expand your mind and keep it love. This is episode 125, and I'm your host, Miguel. First, I want to open up by saying I've been getting some really good feedback on Instagram, which my Instagram is Alpha Male Buddhist, and I've been getting some really solid emails. I'm trying to line up an interview now with a with a guest that's that I want to bring on pretty soon. And we're kind of exchanging messages on Instagram. Awesome platform if, if it's used correctly. Uh, great for networking. It's, as I call, quick and dirty. You get in, you look at the information, the contacts, the hashtags, and it really works, man. It's very effective. And you don't have to pay for advertising if you know how to work with the Instagram and the hashtags and the comment sections and such. It's, it's very powerful. And you're able to laser focus in on the things that you want to address and the cultures that you're interested in and, and, and the topics that you want to pursue on there. So, yeah, a real big shout-out to Instagram. I've had my account for about a year now, but I've been really aggressive on it for the past uh, couple of months. But really, in the past couple of weeks, I've been posting up some videos that are getting really good feedback. They're like 7- to 10-minute clips that I'm putting up. And I get I get kind of likes and stuff, and people, you know, it looks like they like my picture. But if you look at it closely, hopefully people realize it's actually video clips. So, you know, you watch the first clip and then slide and continue to watch it. You see the dots on the bottom. So I, I put out some really good stuff. And I also redid a few of the ones that I had because I was able to put thumbnails on them so you can see what they are, more descriptive, more strategic as far as that platform, as far as bringing, bringing in listeners and growing the podcast, which is something I really want to do. Again, I can't emphasize enough the the encouragement and the positive feedback I'm getting. It's really it's it's something uh, it's really heartwarming, man. I really enjoy it and I like it. And I actually have a couple of uh, listeners that are getting at me saying they're interested in doing their own podcast and stuff like that. So if you guys have any thoughts on that, or you know you have some questions and such, you know just uh, reach out to me on either Instagram or my email or whatever. And you know my email is alphamilbuddhist at gmail.com. And again, my uh, my Instagram is Alpha Male Buddhist, so you reach out there. I also have my own website, which is alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com, so you can see my episodes on there. So I digress like I always do. Carlos Castaneda, Yaqui Way of Knowledge, and A Separate Reality. When I'm going to say I was around 16 years old, um, I was walking past a bookshop on Atlantic Avenue in downtown Brooklyn, and there was a little dinky old bookstore. Well, I love those. You don't see them as much anymore, but I love those all with the crusty-ass books and everything like that because you find some really interesting stuff in there. So I'm like, I'm 16 years old. I'm walking by. And I had already, if I'm not mistaken, I had already started reading Minkus, a book, Minkus, a philosophy, a contemporary of Confucius and uh, the Tao Te Ching and a couple of things I've been reading already. So my mind was starting to open up. Emphasize starting. So I walked past this bookstore at Atlantic Avenue and he has, you know, used books and discounted books all tattered up and stuff on, on the table outside. And I see this book with a guy do walking, kind of floating in the air with an illuminated head in a pair of jeans. And the, and there was like a cactus and a, 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 a rock floating in the air. And I'm like, what the hell? You know, so I picked up the book and I said, how much? He said a dollar. I gave him a dollar. I, I bought it just on the strength of the cover. I said, whatever's in this book, I want to read it. And as I got home, I sat down with it, and I, as I read the first few words of it, and this is the book, A Separate Reality, freaking blew me away. Everything that I had thought up until that time got flipped, like just 180 degrees, and it's like, what is... I had to go, I continue and go back and read the beginning over and over again. 
because I just didn't didn't it didn't sink in what I was reading. So I'm gonna play. If, if I'm not mistaken, in its entirety, his first book, which is called The Yaqui Way of Knowledge. And for those of you who are a little older, um, back in the day when you would go to college, if you took up an anthropology class, the study of man anthropology, pretty much the first book that would put you to read would be a, separ- uh, a Yaqui Way of Knowledge, Carlos Castaneda. It was a college textbook. So before before I get into, you know, I'm going to play the whole audiobook. I'll probably split it. It's like two and a half hours, so I'll probably split it into two episodes, like an A and B kind of deal. And I'll probably put the link in the show descriptions uh, of my website so you can uh, just click it directly. Um, Before I get into this, you're going to hear some terms in there like power and sorcery and a man only has his will and some stuff that you've never heard before, all right? And this guy, Carlos Castaneda, if I'm not mistaken, he was the first guy to really start the uh, New Age movement with all the crystals and all that shit. Like a lot of hippies and people out in Colorado and California, they're really, till this day, uh, they're deeply into Carlos Castaneda. As a matter of fact, I know Aubrey Marcus, the guy that runs on it with Joe Rogan, he's like big into Carlos Castaneda. He's a big spiritual dude. I'm all over the place today, huh? So, you're going to hear a lot of terms in here, and you're going to hear sorcery and such like that, and there's an element of truth to it, because what, you, what you're dealing with here is the Yaqui Indians of, I be, believe it's Sonoma, or Son, Sonora, I believe it is, Mexico, so that was their culture, I mean, you know, you have medicine, we have doc, medical doctors, and they have, you know, medicine men, you know, they believe in evil spirits and good spirits, and nature speaking to you, and animism and everything like that, animism means when you feel that things are alive, like a rock is alive or something. But this is their culture, so again, you can learn from everybody's culture. Now, it is true that in that culture, you have brujos, you're going to hear that term brujo, which is a witch doctor or, you know, like that, so the, a person that is up to no good as far as spiritually, and sorcerers, or, or you know, like, like I said, a brujo. But again, this is part of their culture, and we have that in our own culture. It's called the Dick Cheney and the Donald Rumsfeld and, you know, these, these cats, the Barack Obama and whoever else... Uh, is uh you know killing people these days for it was for profit so what am i saying what i'm saying is knowledge can be gleaned from everything okay you what you choose to accept out of it what you choose to follow out of it is up to you and i stay on the side of light and goodness and god and jesus as you know jesus is my anchor however um you need to have a 360 degree understanding of the things that you're dealing with when it comes to spirituality or whatever. That doesn't mean I'm going to read the, uh, you know, these uh, satanic books and stuff like that. This this falls into a different category. This isn't Satanism. This is like spirituality and what's called quote-unquote knowledge and becoming a man of knowledge, of knowing, of seeing, of stopping the world. He gets into a lot of different terms. Um, like I said, you're going to hear a lot of different terms in this, so... I'm not going to start it from the very beginning of the book. I'm going to start probably about, if I'm not mistaken, like 40, 40, 31, 31 minutes into the book when uh, Don Juan starts breaking it down to his student, okay, Carlos, Carlos Castaneda. And uh, I'm going to start there for a reason because the, the, the first 30 minutes, it kind of goes back and forth how they met. And how he first took masculine and all that stuff like that. And he was, you know, joking around with a dog, but the dog was his ally. And it was just a whole lot of stuff. 
But taking into consideration, because I ca- I'm kind of aware of this and I know the book and such, you know, I thought to myself, if listeners, if I put it on from there, they either might get lost or not understand it or could get slightly thrown off. And what I typically like to do is get to the meat of the matter, like so it kind of grabs you and then you can pursue it on your own or see whatever it is. So I'm going to start it right around the 31 minutes and uh, he gets into a lot of uh, a lot of stuff. So a man of knowledge, right? Um, the best way I could uh, explain this and my interest in this also is I'm going to take it back to when computers first came out. I'm going to say circa 1988 or something like that. I bought, literally, I was a bike messenger for a while. And uh, my older sister said to me, and I had just gotten married, and my older sister said to me, you know, you're driving a bike for a living, and you're a married man, and you're going to have kids, and you're going to have to be a provider, and this bike shit ain't working out. And I'm ext- My sister's like my mom. You know, my mom, uh, I love her dearly, but my, my uh, you know, she kind of got into dementia at it. When I was young, right around that at 16, 8, so she was, I had to take care of her, you know. So my sister kind of got on me and says, hey, you got to do something. So I I got, you know, I took a day off my bike messenger work and I went and interviewed for a job. I went to an agency personnel pool, I think it's called on 42nd Street and 5th Avenue. I don't even know if they're still there. I went and I took a written test and uh, they sent me for an interview at a place doing some kind of computer, working in a computer room with these big printers and such. So the guy handed me a piece of paper, big executive type guy, and there was maybe 30 questions on it. And he said, you know, circle all of the terms that you know on there. And I knew like two terms. And he kind of hit the old school intercom buzzer. And he goes, okay, next applicant, please. And like, like I didn't exist, like I was invisible. And I felt like an idiot. And I'll never, it's burned into my head. I went outside, and this was right around Washington Square Park, right around 8th Street in New York City. And the phone booth that I went to is still there. I I was going to take a picture of it. I went to this phone booth. It was raining outside, and I called my wife, and I says, Honey, you know, I took this interview, and I bombed. And I feel like such an idiot because I don't know anything about computers. I said to her, I'm going to buy a computer and learn everything there is about computers. Because I knew that this was the direction that everything was going. I could just see it. You know, I knew it. So what I ended up doing was, uh, the computers were very expensive. But I ended up buying a Commodore 64 with a 1541 disk drive. You older cats might know what I'm talking about. And I got into it. And within, I started learning basic. Within, and you're going to ask what does this have to do with the book. But I'll get into it in a minute. It, It connects at some point. The way I always do. After, I don't know, two months, I, I kind of outgrew it and I put it in this paper called the Wan Ads and, you know, some dude came and bought it from me. I think I got $250 for it when I sold it. I probably lost 50 bucks. And at that very same time, these computers just came out, these uh, IBM clones and the IBM desktop, what they call PC or desktop computers, that ran an operating system that was called DOS, DOS, Disk Operating Systems. No Windows, none of that, no mouses. You know, this was all... Uh, command line and dot prompt commands where you type in a command and it executes it. So I was working at a magazine publisher. I think I said this on one of my prior podcasts, but there was a guy there named Dave and uh, he had just gotten a computer to organize and sort mailing labels and such like that. It was a trade magazine company. They did restaurant uh, design and hotel design and like these different trade magazines. So he was setting up databases to do the labels and sorts and all that stuff as targeted mailings. 
And this is all happening pretty much at the same time. I, I uh, was watching this guy, Dave, get into the computer. So I bring him a cup of coffee and say, hey, Dave, what are you doing? And I would, you know, and he kind of taught me, you know. So I went out. And this is about the same time that I bought the uh, Commodore 64. I ended up, by the way, the job that I ended up getting was working in a mailroom at this publishing firm. So, you know, but I had my ambitions to move up. As I saw this guy, Dave, dealing in, 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 in programming with this computer and setting up databases, I bought the Commodore 64. Then I kind of, once I saw that I was able to kind of deal with this, I ended up getting that uh, 8088 computer. It didn't, uh, it didn't have a, uh, what was it? It had a, fl- it booted from a floppy disk drive. Okay, it didn't have a hard drive. And I had two programs. One was Lotus 123. And the other was a program called, if I'm not mistaken, it was DBase One by Ashton Tate Database. Same thing that Dave was using. When I bought the computer, the guy gave me free, uh, free illegal copies of the software, and uh, I, I would stay up until like four in the morning. I can remember a couple of times I stayed up all night studying this stuff, and this went on for a couple of months, really getting delving into it. And this is the story I did say one time that uh, Dave was out one day. They wanted labels, and somebody says, "Hey, uh, uh, you know." We need labels. Can we get Dave? And I says, what do you need? And they says, oh, what do you know about computers? And I'm like, and the boss says, hey, why don't you give him a shot? He he might be able to do the labels. And I went into the room to Dave's computer, and I sat down, a little nervous. And a couple of people crowded around the doorway, and I entered the dot prompt command, the command, you know, locate for city equal to and state, whatever. And I hit entered one blank sheet of paper, came out, and they laughed. And I didn't laugh. I says, hold on. I think I forgot a hyphen or a comma or and I typed it in again, the command, I hit enter, and like 90 sheets of labels proceeded to come out of the computer, those Avery labels. So it was probably about 900 labels came out. And I just walked away and went back to my uh, my mailroom, and I wasn't with that company very much longer. I, I moved on to, you know, to a better job, and I started moving up. So what's my point about the computer stuff? There was a point in time a few years after that, maybe four or five years after that, um, it was all DOS. Uh, everything became Windows. I think it was Windows 3.1 with a mouse and all that, which what you see now is Windows. And they actually changed my program from DBase. They changed it to, I think it was Microsoft Access it was, right? But it what's what's called object-oriented. And what and you know, you guys, you know, you might want to listen to this because if you want to get into the computer field, this this remains today. This is the kind of programming. They don't even call it programming. They call it developing today. Uh, so you might, you know, you might get an interest in it. So they switched it over to this um, Microsoft Access and was object-oriented. And what that means, it's completely different than anything I was used to using because you really had to write code um, as opposed to just line commands. And I had everything set up and it was all useless because they took it away from me. And I don't quit. I'm tenacious and I don't quit. I, I found the book for this Access and I went to the first page and it said customer service and there was a number in Seattle, Washington. And was, which was Microsoft headquarters. And at that time, you would call and the tech would pick up and talk to you, you know? And uh, I was pounding them. I, call, I must have called them seriously about 15 times and I couldn't crack the code. I, I wasn't understanding this Microsoft Access, this object-oriented thing with objects and properties and such. So I call up one day and this surfer dude kind of guy picks up and I says, hey, I'm having this issue. So. He proceeded to direct me to a page in the book, you know, the instruction manual of access. And he goes, type this in or put this simple program in or whatever. And I I still wasn't getting it. And then he says, well, dude, it's modular. It's like you have your table object and you have your screen object and you have your report object and you have your field objects. And all of these objects have properties, 
which means if you're looking at a screen and you drill down on the screen, that screen is comprised of fields. And that if you drill down on the field, that field is, has properties to it. The font that you're going to use, um, the type of text, the color of it, the box, the dimensions of it. And then the field also, what, ta what table that field is connected to, and so on and so forth. But when he said to me it's modular, it kind of snapped on me. And I kind of followed his instructions, and I never looked back. My life from that day on changed, like really for the better. Because I, now I really started developing some pretty sophisticated programs. I started take, taking programs that were already written, what I call Frankenstein in them. I would take them apart and look at the code in there and switch it around. And, and I really, I, it, it was amazing, man. It, it was an epiphany for me, and I, it really, like I said, it changed my life. So what am I trying to say again? That was almost like a religious experience in the sense of knowledge and learning, okay? What happened when I did that, I started really seeing the world in a different way. And I started seeing the objects in the world and I realized that these objects do have properties and they do interconnect and there is like a matrix code that's running all of this, right? So whenever I came up on a, a subject or a topic or something that I didn't know, I would search for its properties and see what made it tick and how it worked and how it interacted with everything else. And I realized that if you kept this on long enough, you would crack the code onto different things. Just like Instagram, you know, I was when I, if you look at my Instagram, my first few things were uh, just pictures, JPEGs and stuff like that that I put up. But about a week ago, week and a half ago, I started getting into the videos and I realized you can chain these videos together. And I said, but it looks sloppy because it has a close up of a guy's nose. So I said, let me do a thumb, uh, a thumbnail so that when people look at it, they can realize that this is a video. So if you look at my Instagram, you'll see what I mean. I, I hooked up these really nice thumbnails and nice videos, which I'm getting compliments on. So I realized that you, in order to move ahead in, in life, you have to decode uh, this matrix system that we're in right now. So knowledge is part of that, and this Carlos Castaneda is part of that. And what now here's the point that I'm getting at uh, 17 minutes into it. The, the, the power of this book and all of these philosophical and knowledge books is to help you deconstruct this world and construct it back again, you know, to crack the code, to see the properties and to see how you can better manage and interconnect with everything, right? So when the stuff that you're going to hear on this book... Uh, in other words, this book did this for me also. It was in addition to the computer. This is all happening pretty much. First was the C Carlos Castaneda, but this helped me kind of deconstruct the computer stuff from reading this book. It was it kind of taught me uh, a different way of really looking at reality and that there are layers of reality, okay? So I highly recommend you pay attention to this because it might sound really foreign to you, but give it a really, really good listen because there's a lot of metaphor in this. There's a lot of power. There's a lot of knowledge. Don't let it shy you away thinking that it's like sorcery because it's really not. It's just knowledge. It just happened to come from a Yaqui uh, Indian, a, a, a medicine doctor, whatever, you know, a man of knowledge, as they say. So it's pretty, pretty amazing, man. I, I recommend that you give it a good listen, put your head into this, and you'll definitely get something out of it. Um, and kind of connected with the same topic as far as knowledge and everything like that. Um, 
you know, a couple of people that I know, a couple of messages that I get, you know, from the podcast and stuff like that, I see, and on YouTube especially, I see it. A lot of people, especially younger people today, there's a really high suicide rate, there's a lot of depression, a lot of drug use and stuff like that, and I'm not here to preach or, you know, tell you what to do or how to live your life. Um, But the way I see it, there's, there's a lot of things that contribute to people going through, like, going through the blues or depression or feeling disconnected feeling out of sorts, out of joint with life and existence and everything like that. And, and, you know, I went through a phase like that a couple of weeks ago. I don't know what it was. I was walking around and just all of a sudden I kind of crashed. And I'm, I don't know if my serotonin dropped off the shelf. I don't know. But I just felt like shit for like a couple of days. And I, I, and I just came out of it. I did a podcast and I was fine. And, you know, once in a while this happens. I'm a high energy guy, so I kind of run that way. I'll be up, 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 up. And once in a while I'll crash. But understandable. But. What I'm seeing is a lot of uh, people going through this, and I'm, the way I see it, and what makes sense to me is that a lot of times that's a, as a result of you, I'll be honest with you, not having enough things to do. You have to stay busy and you have to do things that are going to, you know, stimulate your brain because if not, you know, you watch these shows over and over again or you listen to the same music or you're looking for these wheezy sneakers or trying to keep up with the Joneses or you know, just kind of getting immersed in social media, but social media for pointlessness, you know, you can mess with the social media, that's fine, but I mean, but try to have something in your life that is a a hobby or something that you're working on or something to improve your career, because if not, you know, it's like you have no purpose, and when you have no purpose, you kind of become disengaged and your mind just kind of runs on its own, right? So, and if if you're drinking too much, if you're doing too much drugs... I think it's fine if you're going to smoke your weed. I'll just be honest with you. If you're if you're going to do your little drinking or whatever, that's fine. But everything in moderation, the way Aristotle said. Everything in moderation. So keep your mind occupied, man. You know, you, you can listen to my podcast. You listen to other people's podcasts. You hop on YouTube. But there's going to be something that captures your interest. And it's going to fall into two categories. One is going to be revenue generating and the other one is not revenue generating. Revenue generating shit is going to be stuff to help your career and to help you move along and, and, and empower yourself as an individual, as a person, as an entity. The other one is going to be, you know, keeping you busy just so f- for recreation. But And they're both equally important, you know, because if you, you don't want to study, 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 and that's it. You know, you have to have that leisure. So try to find things that interest you. And kind of go into it. And I, I, I am interested in everything. That's why my podcast is the way it is. I mean, if you look at my playlist, I just talk about literally everything. And if I don't know about it, I'll go in and learn. You know, I'll listen to some uh, good YouTube content on that or some podcasts on that content. And I learn it. So, I digress. Back back to uh, this this book, Yaqui Way of Knowledge. I'm going to play it. Give it a good listen. Really pay attention to it. I know that my opening on here, you know, I kind of rambled a little bit. And probably in the intro, I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to um, put that if you want to hear the book and you don't want to hear me ramble, just go to minute 31. But the, my rambling, you know, some people need to hear it. So I'll just leave it like that. So I'm going to play this uh, clip. I'm going to split it into two sections. I believe it's uh, two and a half hours. So I'm going to do like uh, whatever, whatever that uh, hour and a half, 90 minutes or whatever it is in two parts for this episode. And uh, stay tuned for this uh, content. I want to thank you for listening, and namaste. In the summer of 1960, while I was an anthropology student at the University of California, Los Angeles, 
I made several trips to the southwest to collect information on the medicinal plants used by the Indians of the area. The events I describe here began during one of my trips. I was waiting in a border town for a Greyhound bus, talking with a friend who had been my guide and helper in the survey. Suddenly he leaned toward me and whispered that the man, a white-haired old Indian who was sitting in front of the window, was very learned about plants, especially peyote. I asked my friend to introduce me to this man. My friend greeted him, then went over and shook his hand. After they had talked for a while, my friend signaled me to join them, but immediately left me alone with the old man, not even bothering to introduce us. He was not in the least embarrassed. I told him my name, and he said that he was called Juan, and that he was at my service. He used the Spanish polite form of address. We shook hands at my initiative, and then remained silent for some time. It was not a strained silence, but a quietness, natural and relaxed on both sides. Though his dark face and neck were wrinkled, showing his age, it struck me that his body was agile and muscular. I then told him that I was interested in obtaining information about medicinal plants. Although in truth I was almost totally ignorant about peyote, I found myself pretending that I knew a great deal, and even suggesting that it might be to his advantage to talk with me. As I rattled on, he nodded slowly and looked at me, but said nothing. Finally, after what seemed a very long time, Don Juan got up and looked out of the window. His bus had come. He said goodbye and left the station. I was annoyed at having talked nonsense to him, and at being seen through by those remarkable eyes. When my friend returned, he tried to console me for my failure to learn anything from Don Juan. He explained that the old man was often silent or noncommittal, but the disturbing effect of this first encounter was not so easily dispelled. I made a point of finding out where Don Juan lived, and later visited him several times. On each visit I tried to lead him to discuss peyote, but without success. We became nonetheless very good friends, and my scientific investigation was forgotten, or was at least redirected into channels that were worlds apart from my original intention. The friend who had introduced me to Don Juan explained later that the old man was not a native of Arizona where we met, but was a Yaqui Indian from Sonora, Mexico. At first I saw Don Juan simply as a rather peculiar man who knew a great deal about peyote, and who spoke Spanish remarkably well. But the people with whom he lived believed that he had some sort of secret knowledge, that he was a brujo. The Spanish word brujo means in English medicine man, curer, witch, sorcerer. It connotes essentially a person who has extraordinary and usually evil powers. I had known Don Juan for a whole year before he took me into his confidence. One day he explained that he possessed a certain knowledge that he had learned from a teacher, a benefactor, as he called him, who had directed him in a kind of apprenticeship. Don Juan had, in turn, chosen me to serve as his apprentice, but he warned me that I would have to make a very deep commitment and that the training was long and arduous. My notes on my first session with Don Juan are dated June 23, 1961. That was the occasion when the teachings began. I had seen him several times previously in the capacity of an observer only. At every opportunity I had asked him to teach me about peyote. He ignored my request every time, but he never completely dismissed the subject, and I interpreted his hesitancy as a possibility that he might be inclined to talk about his knowledge with more coaxing. In this particular session he made it obvious to me that he might consider my request, provided I possessed clarity of mind and purpose in reference to what I had asked him. 
Would you teach me about peyote, Don Juan? Why would you like to undertake such learning? I really would like to know about it. It is not just to want to know a good reason. No. You must search in your heart and find out why a young man like you wants to undertake such a task of learning. Well, why did you learn about it yourself, Don Juan? Why do you ask that? Well, maybe we both have the same reasons. I doubt that. I'm an Indian. We don't have the same paths. The only reason I have is that I, I want to learn about it, just to know. But I assure you, Don Juan, my intentions are not bad. I believe you. I've smoked you. I beg your pardon? It doesn't matter now. I know your intentions. Do you mean you saw through me? You could put it that way. Well, will you teach me then? No. Is it because I'm not an Indian? No. It's because you don't know your heart. What is important is that you know exactly why you want to involve yourself. Learning about mescalito is a very serious act. If you were an Indian, your desire alone would be sufficient. Very few Indians have such desire. Sunday, June 25, 1961. I stayed with Don Juan all afternoon on Friday. I was going to leave about 7 p.m. We were sitting on the porch in front of his house, and I decided to ask him once more about the teaching. It was almost a routine question, and I expected him to refuse again. I asked him if there was a way in which he could accept just my desire to learn, as if I were an Indian. He took a long time to answer. I was compelled to stay because he seemed to be trying to decide something. Finally, he told me that there was a way. Sunday, August 20th, 1961. Last night, Don Juan proceeded to usher me into the realm of his knowledge. We sat in front of his house in the dark. Suddenly, after a long silence, he began to talk. He said he was going to advise me with the same words his own benefactor had used the first day he took him as his apprentice. Don Juan had apparently memorized the words, for he repeated them several times to make sure I did not miss any. A man goes to knowledge as he goes to war. Wide awake. With fear. With respect and with absolute assurance. Going to knowledge or going to war in any other manner is a mistake, and whoever makes it will live to regret his steps. Then he said he intended to teach me about an ally, in the very same way his own benefactor had taught him. He put strong emphasis on the words very same way, repeating the phrase several times. An ally, he said, is a power a man can bring into his life to help him, advise him, and give him the strength necessary to perform acts, whether big or small, right or wrong. This ally is necessary to enhance a man's life, guide his acts, and further his knowledge. In fact, an ally is the indispensable aid to knowing. Don Juan said this with great conviction and force. He seemed to choose his words carefully. He repeated the following sentence four times. An ally will make you see and understand things about which no human being could possibly enlighten you. Is an ally something like a guardian spirit? It is neither a guardian nor a spirit. It is an aid. The acquiring of an ally required, Don Juan said, the most precise teaching and the following of stages or steps without a single deviation. There are many such ally powers in the world, he said, but he was familiar with only two of them, and he was going to lead me to them and their secrets, but it was up to me to choose one of them, 
for I could have only one. His benefactor's ally was in La Yerba del Diablo, Devil's Weed, but he said he personally did not like it, even though his benefactor had taught him its secrets. His own ally was in the Umito, the little smoke, he said, but he did not elaborate on the nature of the smoke. He apparently felt there was nothing else he wanted to say. He got up and walked toward his house. I told him the situation overwhelmed me. It was not what I had conceived or wanted it to be. He said that fears are natural, that all of us experience them and there's nothing we can do about it. But on the other hand, no matter how frightening learning is, it is more terrible to think of a man without an ally or without knowledge. In the more than two years that elapsed between the time Don Juan decided to teach me about the ally powers and the time he thought I was ready to learn about them in the pragmatic, participatory form he considered as learning, he gradually defined the general features of the two allies in question. He prepared me for the indispensable corollary of all the verbalizations and the consolidation of all the teachings, the states of non-ordinary reality. On Sunday, September 3, 1961, I accompanied Don Juan to some nearby mountains where he collected two datura plants from the field. Great care was taken in the harvesting and preparation of the devil's weed. The procedure, which included cutting, mashing, boiling, and leaching the root, was performed with precision and with reverence. Don Juan impressed upon me the absolute necessity for attention in this work, and he assured me that any deviation from the established method could have disastrous consequences. When the final product of this process was presented by Don Juan on Thursday, September 7th, I took it automatically and drank without hesitation. It was somewhat bitter with a pungent odor. It smelled like cockroaches. Almost immediately I began to sweat. I saw a red spot in front of my eyes and the muscles of my stomach began to contract in painful cramps. After a while, even though I felt no more pain, I began to get cold and perspiration literally soaked me. Don Juan asked if I saw blackness or black spots. I told him I was seeing everything red. Everything went fine the other night, he said later. You saw red, and that's all that's important. Next, you must plant a shoot, a brote, that I have cut from the other half of the first portion of root. You took half of it the other night, and now the other half must be put into the ground. It has to grow and seed before you can undertake the real task of taming the plant. How will I tame her? The devil's weed is tamed through the root. Step by step, you must learn the secrets of each portion of the root. You must intake them in order to learn the secrets and conquer the power. Power is all right for you now. You are young. You are not an Indian. Perhaps the devil's weed would be good in your hands. You seem to have liked it. It made you feel strong. I felt all that myself, and yet I didn't like it. Can you tell me why, Don Juan? I don't like its power. There's no use for it anymore. In other times, like those my benefactor told me about, there was reason to seek power. Men performed phenomenal deeds, were admired for their strength and feared and respected for their knowledge. My benefactor told me stories of truly phenomenal deeds that were performed long, long ago. But now we, the Indians, do not seek that power anymore. Nowadays the Indians use the weed to rub themselves. They use the leaves and flowers for other matters. They even say it cures their boils. But they do not seek its power. A power that acts like a magnet, more potent and more dangerous to handle as the root goes deeper into the ground. When one arrives to a depth of four yards, 
and they say some people have. One finds the seat of permanent power, power without end. Very few humans have done this in the past, and nobody has done it today. I'm telling you, the power of the devil's weed is no longer needed by us, the Indians. Little by little, I think we have lost interest, and now power does not matter anymore. I myself do not seek it, and yet at one time when I was your age, I too felt it swelling inside me. I felt the way you did today only five hundred times more strongly. I killed a man with a single blow of my arm. I could toss boulders, huge boulders not even twenty men could budge. Once I jumped so high I chopped the top leaves off the highest trees, but it was all for nothing. All I did was frighten the Indians, only the Indians. The rest who knew nothing about it did not believe it. They saw either a crazy Indian or something moving at the tops of the trees. We were silent for a long time. I needed to say something. It was different when there were people in the world, he proceeded. People who knew a man could become a mountain lion or a bird, or that a man could simply fly. So I don't use the devil's weed anymore. For what? To frighten the Indians? Para qué? Para asustar a los indios? And I saw him sad, and a deep empathy filled me. I wanted to say something to him, even if it was a platitude. Perhaps, Don Juan, that is the fate of all men who want to know. Perhaps, he said quietly. Thursday, November 23, 1961 I didn't see Don Juan sitting on his porch as I drove in. I thought it was strange. I called to him out loud, and his daughter-in-law came out of the house. He's inside, she said. I found he had dislocated his ankle several weeks before. He had made his own cast by soaking strips of cloth in a mush made with cactus and powdered bone. The strips wrapped tightly around his ankle had dried into a light, streamlined cast. It had the hardness of plaster, but not its bulkiness. How did it happen? I asked. His daughter-in-law, a Mexican woman from Yucatan, who was tending him, answered me. It was an accident. He fell and nearly broke his foot. Don Juan laughed and waited until the woman had left the house before answering. Accident, my eye. I have an enemy nearby. A woman, La Catalina. She pushed me during a moment of weakness and I fell. Why did she do that? She wanted to kill me, that's why. Was she here with you? Yes. Why'd you let her in? I didn't. She flew in. I beg your pardon? She's a blackbird. Chanate, and so effective at that. I was caught by surprise. She's been trying to finish me off for a long while. This time she got real close. Did you say she's a blackbird? I mean, is she a bird? There you go again with your questions. She's a blackbird, the same way I'm a crow. Am I a man or a bird? I'm a man who knows how to become a bird. But going back to La Catalina, she's a fiendish witch. Her intent to kill me is so strong that I can hardly fight her off. The blackbird came all the way into my house, and I couldn't stop it. Can you become a bird, Don Juan? Yes, but that's something we'll take up later. Why does she want to kill you? Oh, there's an old problem between us. It got out of hand, and now it looks as if I'll have to finish her off before she finishes me. Are you going to use witchcraft? I asked with great expectations. Don't be silly. No witchcraft would ever work on her. I have other plans. I'll tell you about them someday. 
Or can your ally protect you from her? No. The little smoke only tells me what to do. Then I must protect myself. Well, how about Mescalito? Can he protect you from her? No. Mescalito is a teacher, not a power to be used for personal reasons. How about the devil's weed? I've already said that I must protect myself, following the directions of my ally, the smoke. And as far as I know, the smoke can do anything. If you want to know about any point in question, the smoke will tell you. And it will give you not only knowledge, but also the means to proceed. It's the most marvelous ally a man could have. Is the smoke the best possible ally for everybody? It's not the same for everybody. Many fear it and won't touch it, or even get close to it. The smoke is like everything else. It wasn't made for all of us. What kind of smoke is it, Don Juan? The smoke of diviners. There was a noticeable reverence in his voice, a mood I had never detected before. I will begin by telling you exactly what my benefactor said to me when he began to teach me about it. Although at that time, like yourself now, I couldn't possibly have understood. The devil's weed is for those who bid for power. The smoke is for those who want to watch and see. And in my opinion, the smoke is peerless. Once a man enters into its field, every other power is at his command. It's magnificent. Of course, it takes a lifetime. It takes years alone to become acquainted with its two vital parts, the pipe and the smoke mixture. The pipe was given to me by my benefactor, and after so many years of fondling it, it has become mine. It has grown into my hands. To turn it over to your hands, for instance, will be a real task for me, and a great accomplishment for you if we succeed. The pipe will feel the strain of being handled by someone else, and if one of us makes a mistake, there won't be any way to prevent the pipe from busting open by its own force, or escaping from our hands to shatter, even if it falls on a pile of straw. If that ever happens, it would mean the end of us both, particularly of me. The smoke would turn against me in unbelievable ways. Well, how could it turn against you if it's your ally? My question seemed to have altered his flow of thoughts. He didn't speak for a long time. The difficulty of the ingredients, he proceeded suddenly, makes the smoke mixture one of the most dangerous substances I know. No one can prepare it without being coached. It is deadly poisonous to anyone except the smoke's protégé. Pipe and mixture ought to be treated with intimate care, and the man attempting to learn must prepare himself by leading a hard, quiet life. Its effects are so dreadful that only a very strong man can stand the smallest puff. Everything is terrifying and confusing at the outset, but every new puff makes things more precise, and suddenly the world opens up anew unimaginable. When this happens, the smoke has become one's ally and will resolve any question by allowing one to enter into inconceivable worlds. This is the smoke's greatest property, its greatest gift, and it performs its function without hurting in the least. I call the smoke a true ally. As usual, we were sitting in front of his house, where the dirt floor is always clean and packed hard. He suddenly got up and went inside the house, after a few moments he returned with the narrow bundle and sat down again. This is my pipe, he said. He leaned over toward me and showed me a pipe he drew out of a sheath made of green canvas. It was perhaps nine or ten inches long. The stem was made of reddish wood. It was plain, without ornamentation. 
The bowl also seemed to be made of wood, but it was rather bulky in comparison with the thin stem. It had a sleek finish and was dark gray, almost charcoal. He held the pipe in front of my face. I thought he was handing it over to me. I stretched out my hand to take it, but he quickly drew it back. This pipe was given to me by my benefactor, he said. In turn, I will pass it on to you, but first you must get to know it. Every time you come here, I will give it to you. Begin by touching it. Hold it very briefly at first, until you and the pipe get used to each other. Then put it in your pocket, or perhaps inside your shirt, and finally put it to your mouth. All this should be done little by little in a slow, careful way. When the bond has been established, la amistad está hecha, you will smoke from it. If you follow my advice and don't rush, the smoke may become your preferred ally too. He handed me the pipe, but without letting go of it, I stretched my right arm toward it. With both hands, he said. What do you smoke, Don Juan? This. He opened his collar and exposed to view a small bag he kept under his shirt, which hung from his neck like a medallion. He brought it out, untied it, and very carefully poured some of its contents into the palm of his hand. As far as I could tell, the mixture looked like finely shredded tea leaves, varying in color from dark brown to light green, with a few specks of bright yellow. He returned the mixture to the bag, closed the bag, tied it with a leather string, and put it under his shirt again. What kind of mixture is it? There are lots of things in it. To get all the ingredients is a very difficult undertaking. One must travel afar. The little mushrooms, los honguitos, needed to prepare the mixture grow only at certain times of the year and only in certain places. What would happen if you should lose or break the pipe? He shook his head very slowly and looked at me. I would die. Are all the sorcerer's pipes like yours? Not all of them have pipes like mine, but I know some men who do. Can you yourself make a pipe like this one, Don Juan, I insisted? Suppose you didn't have it. How could you give me one if you wanted to do so? If I didn't have the pipe, I could not, nor would I want to give one. I would give you something else instead. He seemed to be somehow cross at me. He placed his pipe very carefully inside the sheath, which must have been lined with a soft material, because the pipe, which fitted tightly, slid in very smoothly. He went inside the house to put his pipe away. "'Are you angry at me, Don Juan?' I asked when he returned. He seemed surprised at my question. "'No, I'm never angry at anybody. No human being can do anything important enough for that. You get angry at people when you feel that their acts are important. I don't feel that way any longer.' Saturday, January 27, 1962. As soon as I got to his house this morning, Don Juan told me he was going to show me how to prepare the smoke mixture. We walked to the hills and went quite away into one of the canyons. He stopped next to a tall, slender bush whose color contrasted markedly with that of the surrounding vegetation. The chaparral around the bush was yellowish, but the bush was bright green. From this little tree you must take the leaves and the flowers, he said. The right time to pick them is All Souls' Day, El Dia de las Animas. We continued walking, and he picked three different flowers, saying they were part of the ingredients and were supposed to be gathered at the same time. But the flowers had to be put in separate clay pots and dried in darkness. A lid had to be placed on each pot so the flowers would turn moldy inside the container. He said the function of the leaves and the flowers was to sweeten the smoke mixture. 
We came out of the canyon and walked toward the riverbed. After a long detour, we returned to his house. Late in the evening, we sat in his own room, a thing he rarely allowed me to do, and he told me about the final ingredient of the mixture, the mushrooms. The real secret of the mixture lies in the mushrooms, he said. They are the most difficult ingredient to collect. The trip to the place where they grow is long and dangerous, and to select the right variety is even more perilous. There are other kinds of mushrooms growing alongside which are of no use. They would spoil the good ones if they were dried together. It takes time to know the mushrooms well in order not to make a mistake. Serious harm will result from using the wrong kind. Harm to the man and to the pipe. I know of men who have dropped dead from using the foul smoke. The first time you smoke, I will light the pipe for you. You will smoke all the mixture in the bowl and wait. The smoke will come. You will feel it. It will set you free to see anything you want to see. Properly speaking, it is a matchless ally. But whoever seeks it must have an intent and a will beyond reproach. He needs them, because he has to intend and will his return, or the smoke will not let him come back. Second, he must intend and will to remember whatever the smoke allowed him to see. Otherwise, it will be nothing more than a piece of fog in his mind. Saturday, April 8, 1962 In our conversations, Don Juan consistently used or referred to the phrase man of knowledge, but never explained what he meant by it. I asked him about it. A man of knowledge is one who has followed truthfully the hardships of learning, he said. A man who has, without rushing or without faltering, gone as far as he can in unraveling the secrets of power and knowledge. Can anyone be a man of knowledge? No, not anyone. Then what must a man do to become a man of knowledge? He must challenge and defeat his four natural enemies. The enemies a man encounters on the path of learning to become a man of knowledge are truly formidable. Most men succumb to them. What kind of enemies are they, Don Juan? He refused to talk about the enemies. He said it would be a long time before the subject would make any sense to me. I tried to keep the topic alive and asked him if he thought I could become a man of knowledge. He said no man could possibly tell that for sure. Sunday, April 15, 1962 As I was getting ready to leave, I decided to ask him once more about the enemies of a man of knowledge. I argued that I could not return for some time, and it would be a good idea to write down what he had to say and then think about it while I was away. He hesitated for a while, but then began to talk. When a man starts to learn, he's never clear about his objectives. His purpose is faulty. His intent is vague. He hopes for rewards that will never materialize, for he knows nothing of the hardships of learning. He slowly begins to learn, bit by bit at first then in big chunks, and his thoughts soon clash. What he learns is never what he pictured or imagined, and so he begins to be afraid. Learning is never what one expects. Every step of learning is a new task, and the fear the man is experiencing begins to mount mercilessly, unyieldingly. His purpose becomes a battlefield, and thus he has stumbled upon the first of his natural enemies, fear, a terrible enemy treacherous and difficult to overcome. It remains concealed at every turn of the way, prowling, waiting, and if the man, terrified in its presence, runs away, 
his enemy will have put an end to his quest. What will happen to the man if he runs away in fear? Nothing happens to him except that he will never learn. He will never become a man of knowledge. He will perhaps be a bully or a harmless, scared man. At any rate, he will be a defeated man. His first enemy will have put an end to his cravings. And what can he do to overcome fear? The answer is very simple. He must not run away. He must defy his fear, and in spite of it he must take the next step in learning, and the next, and the next. He must be fully afraid, and yet he must not stop. That is the rule. And a moment will come when his first enemy retreats. But won't the man be afraid again if something new happens to him? No. Once a man has vanquished fear, he's free from it for the rest of his life, because instead of fear, he's acquired clarity, a clarity of mind which erases fear. By then, a man knows his desires. He knows how to satisfy those desires. He can anticipate the new steps of learning, and a sharp clarity surrounds everything. The man feels that nothing is concealed. And thus he has encountered his second enemy, clarity. That clarity of mind which is so hard to obtain dispels fear, but also blinds. It forces the man never to doubt himself. It is like something incomplete. If the man yields to this make-believe power, he succumbed to his second enemy and will fumble with learning. He will be clear as long as he lives, but he will no longer learn or yearn for anything. But what does he have to do to avoid being defeated? He must do what he did with fear. He must defy his clarity and use it only to see. And the moment will come when he will understand that his clarity was only a point before his eyes. He will know at this point that the power he's been pursuing for so long is finally his. He can do with it whatever he pleases. His ally is at his command. His wish is the rule. He sees all that is around him, but he has also come across his third enemy, power. A man at this stage hardly notices his third enemy closing in on him, and suddenly, without knowing, he will certainly have lost the battle. His enemy will have turned him into a cruel, capricious man. Will he lose his power? No, he will never lose his clarity or his power. What then will distinguish him from a man of knowledge? A man who is defeated by power dies without really knowing how to handle it. Power is only a burden upon his fate. Such a man has no command over himself and cannot tell when or how to use his power. Well, how can he defeat his third enemy, Don Juan? He has to defy it, deliberately. He has to come to realize the power he has seemingly conquered is in reality never his. He must keep himself in line at all times, handling carefully and faithfully all that he has learned. Thus he will have defeated his third enemy. The man will be by then at the end of his journey of learning, and almost without warning he will come upon the last of his enemies, old age. This enemy is the cruelest of all, the one he won't be able to defeat completely, but only fight away. But if the man sloughs off his tiredness and lives his fate through, he can then be called a man of knowledge, if only for the brief moment when he succeeds in fighting off his last invincible enemy. That moment of clarity, power, and knowledge is enough. Don Juan seldom spoke openly about Mescalito, 
Every time I questioned him on the subject, he refused to talk, but he always said enough to create an impression of Mescalito, an impression that was always anthropomorphic. Mescalito was a male, not only because of the mandatory grammatical rule that gives the word a masculine gender, but also because of his constant qualities of being a protector and a teacher. Don Juan reaffirmed these characteristics in various forms every time we talked. Friday, July 6, 1962. Don Juan and I started on a trip late in the afternoon of Saturday, June 23rd. He said we were going to look for honguitos, mushrooms, in the state of Chihuahua. He said it was going to be a long, hard trip. He was right. We arrived in a little mining town in northern Chihuahua at 10 p.m. on Wednesday, June 27th. We walked from the place I had parked the car at the outskirts of town to the house of his friends, a Tarahumara Indian and his wife. We slept there. The next morning the man woke us up around five. He brought us gruel and beans. He sat and talked to Don Juan while we ate, but he said nothing concerning our trip. After breakfast the man put water into my canteen and two sweet rolls into my knapsack. Don Juan handed me the canteen, fixed the knapsack with a cord over his shoulders, thanked the man for his courtesies, and turning to me said, It's time to go. We walked on the dirt road for about a mile. From there we cut through the fields, and in two hours we were at the foot of the hill south of town. We climbed the gentle slopes in a southwesterly direction. When we reached the steeper inclines, Don Juan changed directions, and we followed a high valley to the east. Despite his advanced age, Don Juan kept up a pace so incredibly fast that by midday I was completely exhausted. We sat down and he opened the bread sack. You can eat all of it if you want, he said. How about you? I'm not hungry, and we won't need this food later on. I was very tired and hungry and took him up on his offer. I felt this was a good time to talk about the purpose of our trip, and quite casually I asked, Do you think we're going to stay here for a long time? We are here to gather some mescalito. We will stay until tomorrow. Where is mescalito? All around us. Cacti of many species were growing in profusion all through the area, but I could not distinguish peyote among them. We started to hike again, and by three o'clock we came to a long, narrow valley with steep side hills. I felt strangely excited at the idea of finding peyote, which I had never seen in its natural environment. We entered the valley and must have walked about four hundred feet when suddenly I spotted three unmistakable peyote plants. They were in a cluster a few inches above the ground in front of me, to the left of the path. They looked like round, pulpy green roses. I ran toward them, pointing them out to Don Juan. He ignored me and deliberately kept his back turned as he walked away. I knew I had done the wrong thing, and for the rest of the afternoon we walked in silence, moving slowly on the flat valley floor, which was covered with small, sharp-edged rocks. We moved among the cacti, disturbing crowds of lizards and at times a solitary bird, and I passed scores of peyote plants without saying a word. At six o'clock we were at the bottom of the mountains that marked the end of the valley. We climbed to a ledge. Don Juan dropped his sack and sat down. I was hungry again, but we had no food left. I suggested that we pick up the mescalito and head back for town. He looked annoyed and made a smacking sound with his lips. He said we were going to spend the night there. We sat quietly. There was a rock wall to the left, and to the right was the valley we had just crossed. It extended for quite a distance and seemed to be wider then and not so flat as I had thought. Viewed from the spot where I sat, it was full of small hills and protuberances. Tomorrow we will start walking back, Don Juan said, without looking at me and pointing to the valley. 
we will work our way back and pick him as we cross the field. That is, we will pick him only when he's in our way. He will find us and not the other way around. He will find us if he wants to. Don Juan rested his back against the rock wall, and with his head turned to his side, continued talking as though another person were there besides myself. One more thing. Only I can pick him. You will perhaps carry the bag or walk ahead of me, I don't know yet. But tomorrow you will not point at him as you did today. I'm sorry, Don Juan. It's all right, you didn't know. Don Juan sat motionless facing the peyote field. A steady wind blew on my face. The twilight is the crack between the worlds, he said softly, without turning to me. I didn't ask what he meant. My eyes became tired. Suddenly I felt elated. I had a strange, overpowering desire to weep. I lay on my stomach. The rock floor was hard and uncomfortable, and I had to change my position every few minutes. Finally I sat up and crossed my legs. To my amazement, this position was supremely comfortable, and I fell asleep. When I woke up, I heard Don Juan talking to me. It was very dark. I could not see him well. I did not understand what he said, but I followed him when he started to go down from the ledge. We moved carefully, or at least I did, because of the darkness. We stopped at the bottom of the rock wall. Don Juan sat down and signaled me to sit at his left. He opened up his shirt and took out a leather sack, which he opened and placed on the ground in front of him. It contained a number of dried peyote buttons. After a long pause, he picked up one of the buttons. He held it in his right hand, rubbing it several times between the thumb and the first finger as he chanted softly. Suddenly, he let out a tremendous cry. Ahi! It was weird. Unexpected. It terrified me. Vaguely, I saw him place the peyote button in his mouth and begin to chew it. After a moment, he picked up the whole sack leaned toward me and told me in a whisper to take the sack, pick out one mescalito, put the sack in front of us again, and then do exactly as he did. I picked the peyote button and rubbed it as he had done. Meanwhile, he chanted, swaying back and forth. I tried to put the button into my mouth several times, but I felt embarrassed to cry out. Then, as if in a dream, an unbelievable shriek came out of me. For a moment, I thought it was someone else. Again, I felt the effects of a nervous shock in my stomach. Don Juan picked up another button and handed me the sack, and the cycle was renewed and repeated until I had chewed fourteen buttons. By this time, all my early sensations of thirst, cold, and discomfort had disappeared. In their place, I felt an unfamiliar sense of warmth and excitation. I took the canteen to freshen my mouth, but it was empty. Can we go to the creek, Don Juan? I repeated the question. My voice sounded as though I was talking inside a vault. Don Juan did not answer. I got up and turned in the direction of the creek. I looked at him to see if he was coming, but he seemed to be listening attentively to something. He made an imperative sign with his hand to be quiet. Abutol is already here, he said. I had never heard that word before, and I was wondering whether to ask him about it when I detected a noise that seemed to be a buzzing inside my ears. The sound became louder by degrees until it was like the vibration caused by an enormous bull roarer. It lasted for a brief moment and subsided gradually until everything was quiet again. The violence and the intensity of the noise terrified me. I was shaking so much that I could hardly remain standing, yet I was perfectly rational. 
If I had been drowsy a few minutes before, this feeling had totally vanished, giving way to a state of extreme lucidity. The noise reminded me of a science fiction movie in which a gigantic bee buzzed its wings coming out of an atomic radiation area. I laughed at the thought. I saw Don Juan slumping back into his relaxed position, and suddenly the image of a gigantic bee accosted me again. It was more real than ordinary thoughts. It stood alone, surrounded by an extraordinary clarity. Everything else was driven from my mind. This state of mental clearness, which had no precedence in my life, produced another moment of terror. I began to perspire. I leaned toward Don Juan to tell him I was afraid. His face was a few inches from mine. He was looking at me, but his eyes were the eyes of a bee. They looked like round glasses that had a light of their own in the darkness. His lips were pushed out, and from them came a pattering noise. I jumped backward, nearly crashing into the rock wall. For a seemingly endless time I experienced an unbearable fear. I was panting and whining. The perspiration had frozen on my skin, giving me an awkward rigidity. Then I heard Don Juan's voice saying, Get up. Move around. Get up. The image vanished, and again I could see his familiar face. I'll get some water, I said after another endless moment. My voice cracked. I could hardly articulate the words. Don Juan nodded yes. As I walked away, I realized that my fear had gone as fast and as mysteriously as it had come. Upon approaching the creek, I noticed that I could see every object in the way. I remembered I had just seen Don Juan clearly, whereas earlier I could hardly distinguish the outlines of his figure. I stopped and looked into the distance, and I could even see across the valley. Some boulders on the other side became perfectly visible. I thought it must be early morning, but it occurred to me that I might have lost track of time. I looked at my watch. It was ten of twelve. I checked the watch to see if it was working. It couldn't be midday. It had to be midnight. I intended to make a dash for the water and come back to the rocks, but I saw Don Juan coming down, and I waited for him. I told him I could see in the dark. He stared at me for a long time without saying a word. If he did speak, perhaps I did not hear him, for I was concentrating on my new, unique ability to see in the dark. I could distinguish the very minute pebbles in the sand— at moments everything was so clear it seemed to be early morning or dusk. Then it would get dark. Then it would clear again. Soon I realized that the brightness corresponded to my heart's diastole and the darkness to its systole. The world changed from bright to dark to bright again with every beat of my heart. I was absorbed in this discovery when the same strange sound that I had heard before became audible again. My muscles stiffened. Anuchtal, as I heard the word this time, is here, Don Juan said. I fancied the roar so thunderous, so overwhelming, that nothing else mattered. When it had subsided, I perceived a sudden increase in the volume of water. The creek, which a minute before had been less than a foot wide, expanded until it was an enormous lake. Light that seemed to come from above it touched the surface as though shining through thick foliage. From time to time the water would glitter for a second, gold and black. Then it would remain dark, lightless, almost out of sight, and yet strangely present. I don't recall how long I stayed there just watching, squatting on the shore of the Black Lake. The roar must have subsided in the meanwhile, because what jolted me back to reality was again a terrifying buzzing. I turned around to look for Don Juan. I saw him climbing up and disappearing behind the rock ledge. Yet the feeling of being alone did not bother me at all. I squatted there in a state of absolute confidence and abandonment. The roar again became audible. 
It was very intense, like the noise made by a high wind. Listening to it as carefully as I could, I was able to detect a definite melody. It was a composite of high-pitched sounds, like human voices accompanied by a deep bass drum. I focused all my attention on the melody and again noticed that the systole and diastole of my heart coincided with the sound of the bass drum and with the pattern of the music. I stood up and the melody stopped. I tried to listen to my heartbeat, but it was not detectable. I squatted again, thinking that perhaps the position of my body had caused or induced the sounds, but nothing happened. Not a sound. Not even my heart. I thought I had had enough. But as I stood up to leave, I felt a tremor of the earth. The ground under my feet was shaking. I was losing my balance. I fell backwards and remained on my back while the earth shook violently. I tried to grab a rock or a plant, but something was sliding under me. I jumped up, stood for a moment, and fell down again. The ground on which I sat was moving, sliding into the water like a raft. I remained motionless, stunned by a terror that was like everything else, unique, uninterrupted, and absolute. I moved through the water of the black lake, perched on a piece of soil that looked like an earthen log. I had the feeling I was going in a southerly direction, transported by the current. I could see the water moving and swirling around. It felt cold and oddly heavy to the touch. I fancied it alive. There were no distinguishable shores or landmarks, and I can't recall the thoughts or the feelings that must have come to me during this trip. After what seemed like hours of drifting, my raft made a right-angle turn to the left, the east. It continued to slide on the water for a very short distance and unexpectedly rammed against something. The impact threw me forward. I closed my eyes and felt a sharp pain as my knees and my outstretched arms hit the ground. After a moment I looked up. I was lying on the dirt. It was as though my earthen log had merged with the land. I sat up and turned around. The water was receding. It moved backward like a wave in reverse until it disappeared. I sat there for a long time, trying to collect my thoughts and resolve all that had happened into a coherent unit. My entire body ached. My throat felt like an open sore. I had bitten my lips when I landed. I stood up. The wind made me realize I was cold. My clothes were wet. My hands and jaws and knees shook so violently that I had to lie down again. Drops of perspiration slid into my eyes and burned them until I yelled with pain. After a while I regained a measure of stability and stood up. In the dark twilight the scene was very clear. I took a couple of steps. A distinct sound of many human voices came to me. They seemed to be talking loudly. I followed the sound. I walked for about fifty yards and came to a sudden stop. I had reached a dead end. The place where I stood was a corral formed by enormous boulders. I could distinguish another row and then another and another until they merged into the sheer mountain. From among them came the most exquisite music. It was a fluid, uninterrupted, eerie flow of sounds. At the foot of one boulder I saw a man sitting on the ground, his face turned almost in profile. I approached him until I was perhaps ten feet away. Then he turned his head and looked at me. I stopped. His eyes were the water I had just seen. They had the same enormous volume, the sparkling of gold and black, his head was pointed like a strawberry. His skin was green, dotted with innumerable warts. Except for the pointed shape, his head was exactly like the surface of the peyote plant. I stood in front of him, staring. I couldn't take my eyes away from him. I felt he was deliberately pressing on my chest with the weight of his eyes. I was choking. I lost my balance and fell to the ground. 
His eyes turned away. I heard him talking to me. At first his voice was like the soft rustle of a light breeze. Then I heard it as music, as a melody of voices, and I knew it was saying, What do you want? I knelt before him and talked about my life, and then wept. He looked at me again. I felt his eyes pulling me away, and I thought that moment would be the moment of my death. He signaled me to come closer. I vacillated for an instant before I took a step forward. As I came closer, he turned his eyes away from me and showed me the back of his hand. The melody said, Look. There was a round hole in the middle of his hand. Look, the melody said again. I looked into the hole, and I saw myself. I was very old and feeble, and was running, stooped over, with bright sparks flying all around me. Then three of the sparks hit me, two in the head and one in the left shoulder. My figure in the hole stood up for a moment until it was fully vertical, and then disappeared together with the hole. Mescalito turned his eyes to me again. They were so close to me that I heard them rumble softly with that peculiar sound I had heard many times that night. They became peaceful by degrees, until they were like a quiet pond, rippled by gold and black flashes. He turned his eyes away once more and hopped like a cricket for perhaps fifty yards. He hopped again, and again, and was gone. The next thing I remember is that I began to walk. Very rationally, I tried to recognize landmarks, such as mountains in the distance, in order to orient myself. I had been obsessed by cardinal points throughout the whole experience, and I believed that north had to be to my left. I walked in that direction for quite a while before I realized that it was daytime, and that I was no longer using my night vision. I remembered I had a watch, and I looked at the time. It was eight o'clock. It was about ten o'clock when I got to the ledge where I had been the night before. Don Juan was lying on the ground asleep. "'Where have you been?' he asked. I sat down to catch my breath. After a long silence, he asked, "'Did you see him?' I began to narrate to him the sequence of my experiences from the beginning, but he interrupted me, saying that all that mattered was whether I had seen him or not. He asked how close to me Mescalito was. I told him I had nearly touched him. We drank some water and started to walk. When we reached the edge of the valley, he seemed to hesitate for a moment before deciding which direction to take. Once he had made his choice, we walked in a straight line. Every time we came to a peyote plant, he squatted in front of it and very gently cut off the top with his short serrated knife. We collected sixty-five buttons. When the bag was completely filled, he put it on my back and strapped a new one to my chest. By the time we had crossed the plateau, we had two full sacks containing 110 peyote buttons. The bags were so heavy and bulky that I could hardly walk under their weight and volume. Don Juan whispered to me that the bags were heavy because Mescalito wanted to return to the ground. He said it was the sadness of leaving his abode which made Mescalito heavy. My real chore was not to let the bags touch the ground, because if I did, Mescalito would never allow me to take him again. At one particular moment, the pressure of the straps on my shoulders became unbearable. Something was exerting tremendous force in order to pull me down. I felt very apprehensive. I noticed that I had started to walk faster, almost at a run. I was in a way trotting behind Don Juan. Suddenly the weight on my back and chest diminished. 
the load became spongy and light. I ran freely to catch up with Don Juan, who was ahead of me. I told him I did not feel the weight any longer. He explained that we had already left Mescalito's abode. Tuesday, July 3, 1962 I think Mescalito has almost accepted you, Don Juan said. Why do you say he's almost accepted me, Don Juan? He did not kill you or even harm you. He gave you a good fright, but not a really bad one. If he had not accepted you at all, he would have appeared to you as monstrous and full of wrath. Some people have learned the meaning of horror upon encountering him and not being accepted by him. Don Juan inquired periodically, in a casual way, about the state of my datura plant. In the year that had elapsed from the time I replanted the root, the plant had grown into a large bush. It had seeded, and the seed pods had dried, and Don Juan judged it was time for me to learn more about the devil's weed. Monday, January 28, 1963. Don Juan said, If you complete the second step successfully, I can show you only one more step. In the course of learning about the devil's weed, I realized she was not for me, and I did not pursue her path any further. What made you decide against it, Don Juan? The devil's weed nearly killed me every time I tried to use her. Once it was so bad I thought I was finished, and yet I could have avoided all that pain. How? Is there a special way to avoid pain? Yes, there's a way. Is it a formula, a procedure, or what? It is a way of grabbing on to things. For instance, when I was learning about the devil's weed, I was too eager. I grabbed on to things the way kids grab on to candy. The devil's weed is only one of a million paths. Anything is one of a million paths. Un camino entre cantidades de caminos. Therefore, you must always keep in mind that a path is only a path. If you feel you should not follow it, you must not stay with it under any conditions. To have such clarity, you must lead a disciplined life. Only then will you know that any path is only a path, and there's no affront to oneself or to others in dropping it if that is what your heart tells you to do. But your decision to keep on the path or to leave it must be free of fear or ambition. I warn you, look at every path closely and deliberately. Try it as many times as you think necessary. Then ask yourself and yourself alone one question. This question is one that only a very old man asks. My benefactor told me about it once when I was young, and my blood was too vigorous for me to understand it. And now I do understand it. I will tell you what it is. Does this path have a heart? All paths are the same. They lead nowhere. There are paths going through the bush or into the bush. In my own life, I could say I have traversed long, long paths, but I am not anywhere. My benefactor's question has meaning now. Does this path have a heart? If it does, the path is good. If it doesn't, it is of no use. Both paths lead nowhere, but one has a heart, the other doesn't. One makes for a joyful journey as long as you follow it. You're one with it. The other will make you curse your life. One makes you strong. The other weakens you. Sunday, April 21st, 1963. On Tuesday afternoon, April 16th, Don Juan and I went to the hills where his datura plants are. He asked me to leave him alone there and wait for him in the car. 
He returned nearly three hours later carrying a package wrapped in a red cloth. As we started to drive back to his house, he pointed to the bundle and said it was his last gift for me. I asked if he meant he was not going to teach me any more. He explained that he was referring to the fact that I had a plant fully mature and would no longer need his plants. Late in the afternoon, we sat in his room, and Don Juan began to demonstrate the preparation of the second portion of the devil's weed with the same meticulous attention and reverence that had characterized his first teaching. In a very exacting yet somehow rhythmic manner, the root, seeds, and live grain weevils were prepared. The procedure, which took many hours and was often accompanied by ritual chants, yielded a small amount of liquid and an unguent paste. The paste was to be applied to the temples on this occasion, and special care was to be taken to avoid the forehead. The most important and most unsettling aspect of the teaching of the second portion was the use, or more properly, the collaboration of two lizards in the sorcery. The sudden appearance of these two in the hands of Don Juan, one with eyes sewn shut, the other with her mouth similarly prepared, produced in me anxiety to the point of revulsion. The real mystery was the lizards, he said. They were to be befriended and revered as divinatory intermediaries. When the preparations were complete, Don Juan gave me a small amount of yellowish liquid to drink and led me to a rocky area near his house. He pointed to a large rock and told me to sit in front of it as if it were my datura plant. I will leave you alone, he said, and walked away. It was almost dark by then. I thought of Don Juan's words, the twilight, there's the crack between the worlds. After a long hesitation, I began to follow the steps prescribed. The paste, though it looked like oatmeal, did not feel like oatmeal. It was very smooth and cold. The paste had dried up and scaled off my temples. I was about to rub some more of it on when I realized I was sitting on my heels in Japanese fashion. I had been sitting cross-legged and did not recall changing positions. It took some time to realize fully that I was sitting on the floor in a sort of cloister with high arches. I thought they were brick arches, but upon examining them I saw they were stone. This transition was very difficult. It came so suddenly that I was not ready to follow. My perception of the elements of the vision was diffused as if I were dreaming, yet the components did not change. They remained steady, and I could stop alongside any one of them and actually examine it. The vision was not so clear or so real as one induced by peyote. It had a misty character, an intensely pleasing pastel quality. I wondered whether I could get up or not, and the next thing I noticed was that I had moved. I was at the top of a stairway, and H., a friend of mine, was standing at the bottom. Her eyes were feverish. There was a mad glare in them. She laughed aloud and with such intensity that she was terrifying. She began coming up the stairs. I wanted to run away or take cover because she'd been off her rocker once. That was the thought that came to my mind. I hid behind a column and she went by me without looking. She's going on a long trip now, was another thought that occurred to me then. And finally the last thought I remembered was, she laughs every time she's ready to crack up. Suddenly the scene became very clear. It was no longer like a dream, it was like an ordinary scene, but I seemed to be looking at it through window glass. I tried to touch a column, but all I sensed was that I couldn't move. Yet I knew I could stay as long as I wanted, viewing the scene. I was in it, and yet I was not part of it. I experienced a barrage of rational thoughts and arguments. I was, so far as I could judge, in an ordinary state of sober consciousness. Every element belonged in the realm of my normal processes, and yet I knew it was not an ordinary state. 
The scene changed abruptly. It was nighttime. I was in the hall of a building. The darkness inside the building made me aware that in the earlier scene the sunlight had been beautifully clear, yet it had been so commonplace that I did not notice it at the time. As I looked further into the new vision, I saw a young man coming out of a room carrying a large knapsack on his shoulders. I didn't know who he was, although I had seen him once or twice. He walked by me and went down the stairs. By then I had forgotten my apprehension, my rational dilemmas. Who's that guy, I thought? Why did I see him? The scene changed again, and I was watching the young man deface books. He glued some of the pages together, erased markings, and so on. Then I saw him arranging the books neatly in a wooden crate. There was a pile of crates. They were not in his room, but in a storage place. Other images came to my mind, but they were not clear. The scene became foggy. I had a sensation of spinning. Don Juan shook me by the shoulders, and I woke up. He helped me to stand, and we walked back to his house. The next step in Don Juan's teachings was a new aspect of mastering the second portion of the Datura route. In the time that elapsed between the two stages of learning, Don Juan inquired only about the development of my plant. Saturday, June 29, 1963 I brought up the subject of the devil's weed. I wanted Don Juan to tell me more about it, and yet I did not want to be committed to participate. The second portion is used only to divine, isn't that so, Don Juan? I asked to start the conversation. Not only to divine... One learns the sorcery of the lizards with the aid of the second portion, and at the same time one tests the devil's weed. But in reality the second portion is used for other purposes. The sorcery of the lizards is only the beginning. Then what is it used for, Don Juan? He did not answer. He abruptly changed the subject and asked me how big were the datura plants growing around my own plant. I made a gesture of size. Don Juan said, I have taught you how to tell a male from a female. Now go to your plants and bring me both. Saturday, July 6th, 1963. On Monday, July 1st, I cut the Datura plants Don Juan had asked for. I took the plants to Don Juan's house on Tuesday, July 2nd. He opened the bundles and examined the pieces. He said it would take two days to prepare this second portion. He told me not to eat anything in the meantime. I could have water, but no food at all. The next day, Thursday, July 4th, Don Juan directed me to leach the root four times. By the last time I poured the water out of the bowl, it had already become dark. We sat on the porch. He put both bowls in front of him. The root extract measured a teaspoon of a whitish starch. He put it into a cup and added water. He rotated the cup in his hand to dissolve the substance and then handed the cup to me. He told me to drink all that was in the cup. I drank it fast and then put the cup on the floor and slumped back. My heart began pounding. I felt I could not breathe. Don Juan ordered me matter-of-factly to take off all my clothes. I asked him why, and he said I had to rub myself with the paste. I hesitated. I did not know whether to undress. Don Juan urged me to hurry up. He said there was very little time to fool around. I followed his directions. The paste was cold and had a particularly strong odor. When I had finished applying it, I straightened up. The smell from the mixture entered my nostrils. It was suffocating me. The pungent odor was actually choking me. It was like a gas of some sort. I tried to breathe through my mouth and tried to talk to Don Juan, but I couldn't. Don Juan kept staring at me. I took a step toward him. My legs were rubbery and long, extremely long. I took another step. My knee joints felt springy like a vault pole. They shook and vibrated and contracted elastically. I moved forward. The motion of my body was slow and shaky. It was more like a tremor forward and up. 
I looked down and saw Don Juan sitting below me, way below me. The momentum carried me forward one more step, which was even more elastic and longer than the preceding one, and from there I soared. I remember coming down once, then I pushed up with both feet, sprang backwards, and glided on my back. I saw the dark sky above me and the clouds going by me. I jerked my body so I could look down. I saw the dark mass of the mountains. My speed was extraordinary. My arms were fixed, folded against my sides. My head was the directional unit. If I kept it bent backwards, I made vertical circles. I changed directions by turning my head to the side. I enjoyed such freedom and swiftness as I had never known before. The marvelous darkness gave me a feeling of sadness, of longing, perhaps. It was as if I had found a place where I belonged, the darkness of the night. I tried to look around, but all I sensed was that the night was serene, and yet it held so much power. Suddenly I knew it was time to come down. It was as if I had been given an order I had to obey, and I began descending like a feather with lateral motions. That type of movement made me very ill. It was slow and jerky, as though I were being lowered by pulleys. I got sick. My head was bursting with the most excruciating pain. A kind of blackness enveloped me. I was very aware of the feeling of being suspended in it. The next thing I remember is the feeling of waking up. I was in my bed, in my own room. I sat up, and the image of my room dissolved. I stood up. I was naked. The motion of standing made me sick again. I recognized some of the landmarks. I was about half a mile from Don Juan's house, near the place of his datura plants. Suddenly everything fitted into place, and I realized that I would have to walk all the way back to his house naked. To be deprived of clothes was a profound psychological disadvantage, but there was nothing I could do to solve the problem. I thought of making myself a skirt with branches, but the thought seemed ludicrous, and besides, it was soon going to be dawn, for the morning twilight was already clear. I forgot about my discomfort and my nausea and started to walk toward the house. I was obsessed with the fear of being discovered. I watched for people and dogs. I tried to run, but I hurt my feet on the small, sharp stones. I walked slowly. It was already very clear. Then I saw somebody coming up the road, and I quickly jumped behind the bushes. My situation seemed so incongruous to me. A moment before I had been enjoying the unbelievable pleasure of flying, the next minute I found myself hiding, embarrassed by my own nakedness. I thought of jumping out on the road again and running with all my might past the person who was coming. I thought he would be so startled that by the time he realized it was a naked man, I would have left him far behind. I thought all that but I did not dare to move. The person coming up the road was just upon me and stopped walking. I heard him calling my name. It was Don Juan, and he had my clothes. As I put them on, he looked at me and he laughed. He laughed so hard that I wound up laughing too. The same day, Friday, July 5th, late in the afternoon, Don Juan asked me to narrate the details of my experience. As carefully as I could, I related the whole episode. The second portion of the devil's weed is used to fly, he said when I had finished. The unguent by itself is not enough. My benefactor said that it is the root that gives direction and wisdom, and it is the cause of flying. As you learn more and take it often in order to fly, you will begin to see everything with great clarity. There was a question I wanted to ask him. I knew he was going to evade it, so I waited for him to mention the subject. I waited all day. Finally, before I left that evening, I had to ask him, Did I really fly, Don Juan? That is what you told me, didn't you?
I know, Don Juan. I mean, did my body fly? Did I take off like a bird? You always ask me questions I cannot answer. You flew. That is what the second portion of the devil's weed is for. As you take more of it, you will learn how to fly perfectly. It's not a simple matter. A man flies with the help of the second portion of the devil's weed. That is all I can tell you. What you want to know makes no sense. Birds fly like birds, and a man who has taken the devil's weed flies as such. El inyerbado vuela así. As birds do? Así como los pájaros? No. He flies as a man who has taken the weed. No. Así como los enyerbados. Let's put it another way, Don Juan. What I meant to say is that if I had tied myself to a rock with a heavy chain, I would have flown just the same because my body had nothing to do with my flying? Don Juan looked at me incredulously. If you tie yourself to a rock, he said, I'm afraid you will have to fly holding the rock with its heavy chain. Collecting the ingredients and preparing them for the smoke mixture formed a yearly cycle. The first year, Don Juan taught me the procedure. In December of 1962, the second year, when the cycle was renewed, Don Juan merely directed me. I collected the ingredients myself, prepared them, and put them away until the next year. In December 1963, a new cycle started for the third time. As soon as we had finished the third collecting and preparing cycle, Don Juan began to talk about the smoke as an ally for the first time in more than a year. Tuesday, December 31, 1963. On Thursday, December 26th, I had my first experience with Don Juan's ally, the smoke. Without giving me an opportunity to say anything, Don Juan told me he was going to light his pipe for me right then. I tried to dissuade him, arguing that I did not believe I was ready. I told him I felt I had not handled the pipe for a long enough time, but he said there was not much time left for me to learn, and I had to use the pipe very soon. He brought the pipe out of its sack and fondled it. I sat on the floor next to him and frantically tried to get sick and pass out, to do anything, to put off this unavoidable step. He held the pipe in his left hand, and with an extremely swift movement of his right hand picked up a burning piece of charcoal and put it into the bowl of the pipe. Then he sat up straight, and holding the pipe with both hands, put it to his mouth and puffed three times. He stretched his arms to me and told me in a forceful whisper to take the pipe with both hands and smoke. The thought of refusing the pipe and running away crossed my mind for an instant, but Don Juan demanded again, still in a whisper, that I take the pipe and smoke. I looked at him. His eyes were fixed on me, but his stare was friendly, concerned. It was clear that I had made the choice a long time before. There was no alternative but to do what he said. Don Juan told me to inhale. The smoke flowed into my mouth and seemed to circulate there. It was heavy. I felt as though I had a mouthful of dough. The simile occurred to me, although I had never had a mouthful of dough. The smoke was also like menthol, and the inside of my mouth suddenly became cold. It was a refreshing sensation. Again. Again. Suddenly Don Juan leaned over and took the pipe from my hands. He tapped the ashes gently on the dish with the charcoals, then he wet his finger with saliva and rotated it inside the bowl to clean its sides. He blew through the stem repeatedly. I saw him put the pipe back into its sheath. His actions held my interest. 
Don Juan sat next to me, to my right, and without moving held the pipe sheath against the floor as though keeping it down by force. My hands were heavy. My arms sagged, pulling my shoulders down. My nose was running. I wiped it with the back of my hand, and my upper lip was rubbed off. I wiped my face, and all the flesh was wiped off. I was melting. I felt as if my flesh was actually melting. I jumped to my feet and tried to grab hold of something, anything with which to support myself. I was experiencing a terror I had never felt before. I held onto a pole that Don Juan keeps stuck on the floor in the center of his room. I stood there for a moment, then I turned to look at him. He was still, sitting motionless, holding his pipe, staring at me. My breath was painfully hot or cold. It was choking me. I bent my head forward to rest it on the pole, but apparently I missed it, and my head kept on moving downward beyond the point where the pole was. I stopped when I was nearly down to the floor. I pulled myself up. The pole was there in front of my eyes. I tried again to rest my head on it. I tried to control myself and to be aware, and kept my eyes open as I leaned forward to touch the pole with my forehead. It was a few inches from my eyes, but as I put my head against it, I had the queerest feeling that I was going right through it. In a desperate search for a rational explanation, I concluded that my eyes were distorting depth, and that the pole must have been ten feet away, even though I saw it directly in front of my face. I then conceived a logical, rational way to check the position of the pole. I began moving sideways around it, one little step at a time. My argument was that in walking around the pole in that way, I couldn't possibly make a circle more than five feet in diameter. If the pole was really ten feet away from me or beyond my reach, a moment would come when I would have my back to it. I trusted that at that moment the pole would vanish, because in reality it would be behind me. I then proceeded to circle the pole, but it remained in front of my eyes as I went around it. In a fit of frustration I grabbed it with both hands, but my hands went through it. I was grabbing the air. I carefully calculated the distance between the pole and myself. I figured it must be three feet. That is, my eyes perceived it as three feet. Welcome to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. I like to cover topics from ancient history, great leaders and generals from the past, and I also like to talk about self-realization, truth, critical thinking, and strategic spirituality. Outside the box, nonconformist. I'm here to shatter the myths of the mainstream media and the beta sheeple narrative. My email address is alphamalebuddhist at gmail.com. My website is alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com. My Instagram is alphamalebuddhist. And check out my YouTube channel, Alpha Male Buddhist, and that's on YouTube. It is the podcast accompanied with video clips that integrate exactly with the podcast, so it's motivational and inspirational. I also have promotional t-shirts if you go to my website alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com you can see the promotional t-shirts there reach out to me also if you have any show notes or any suggestions that you would like to hear on the podcast just reach out and see if i can get that done i've been getting some really 
great emails and feedback from my listeners, which is great. So I want to thank you for listening and namaste.